So um, I think it's one of the most valuable companies on the planet right now, Amazon.com. Jeff Bezos started it about 20 years ago. And last, last quarter, so this would have been ending in June, they made $121 billion. They earned it. They didn't profit that much, but they earned $121 billion. That works out to $1.3 billion per day. That's a lot of stuff, right? Last year, Jeff Bezos did something that surprised even me. He stepped down as CEO. I don't know if you realize this. He's still very involved in the company. His new position that he created for himself was called executive chair. What's, why did he do this? It's strange. His company, I mean, he's, I think Bezos maybe today is the wealthiest man on the planet. It may be, he's certainly top three. Um, he has done an amazing job with that company. So why would he do that? Why would he step away from really the place of most control? in what you might call his baby, right? And he tells in an article in Inc. Magazine, he tells why. Uh, they kind of draw from a couple of sources. There's a letter to the shareholders. There's a letter to the employees. But the essence of what he said was this. He'd been reading, ironically, an atheist, a book about, uh, by an atheist about science. And one of the things in this science was, which is true for science, is it's true in our world, is that everything that is alive, actually everything on the planet, moves from wherever it is towards blending in an equilibrium into the planet. So, for example, I am moving towards equilibrium with the planet. You know what that looks like, right? It's me in a coffin and I'm just a pile of dust. That's equilibrium for the human body, okay? And he recognized that what this atheist was writing in his book was really kind of like a metaphor for his company. He was like, well, my company is going to naturally drift towards death, towards dying, towards just blending in with everything that's left. And he recognized, and this is evolutionary thinking coming out in the book, right? The book said, unless you do something to stave off death, which is really just delaying the inevitable, Unless you do that, it's just going to happen. And so he decided it was wise for him to step away from the normal day-to-day operations of the company so that he could take the time to work on re, on inventing and extending the life of the company. It's brilliant. He is willing to step outside of what he has created to, to work on the things that really matter in his company's life. Well, there's a lot there for us, right? Just ask yourself the question. Because he asked this question, where is my company heading? What is the trajectory of my company? And he concluded, unless somebody does something to stave off death, it's to become just like every other company in the past. It's just going to blend in and eventually die. Well, you and I know, if you've read the story and you know the, how this ends, you know that everything's going to end. Right? It's not just Amazon.com or the bookstore around the corner, right? Our country is going to end one day. Our planet is going to end one day. Our lives are going to end one day. And if all you think about and know about is this world, then we're just going to, your future is a pile of dust. Unless you do something to stave off death. Unless you look at the trajectory of your life and ask yourself the question, 
Am I heading somewhere I want to be going? So my question for you today is where are you heading today? Where is your life heading today? Okay, now that's a scary question to ask, but it's worth taking a chance and thinking about it. If you think ahead, and it might just be a year, and it might be 30 years, and it might be 50 years, but if you look ahead, if you land where you're heading and you were to go there and put yourself there and look back, would you be okay with where you landed? Or maybe it's where do I want to go and then ask yourself, am I on trajectory to get there? Those are good questions to ask. And then you have to ask yourself the question, well, how far do I go? And my hope is that you won't just go to the end of this life and stop because that's not the end of life. At least not, it's not the end of our souls. Our souls live forever somewhere. The question is where? And Jesus says, I have all that you need to answer that question well. And I have all that you need to accomplish your goal of staving off death and living forever. And not just living forever, because that is not necessarily good but living forever in abundant life through our Creator and our Redeemer. And that's what Jesus came to do. The problem is, when He showed up, nobody recognized Him for who He was. Well, a few did, but most people didn't. And so He stirred up quite a hornet's nest in the process. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into Matthew in chapter 9. We're going to finish up chapter 9 today, and we're going to see why does He keep doing all these miracles? And we're going to see that he is leading us to to receive and, and to engage a different trajectory maybe than we're on. Now, I'll, I will warn the Christians in the room, those who have been Christians for 10 years or longer, be careful. You may go, I got this. I already know where I'm heading. I've got it. And I've said, okay, I, you're probably right. But be give give Jesus a chance, give the Spirit of God a chance to speak into your life, and maybe there's a course correction. Maybe it's just a tweak. Or maybe it's more. All right? Let's do this. Chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Now let me remind you of a couple of things. Matthew is one of the twelve, was one of the twelve disciples, and he is writing his account of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is doing so with his main audience being Jews. Okay? He wants to make it clear to them in particular, but to anybody who's reading, that this is an extension, a natural progression to the original covenant that we find in starting in Genesis and then working all the way through the Old Testament. That this is not God going to plan B. This is God continuing the plan. Okay? And that's why we can go back to the Old Testament and read the stories and the history and the, and the poetry and see Christ all over those pages, okay? He's all over the place. It's, you gotta, we gotta work a little bit more. New Testament, it's a little more spelled out for us. In chapter eight and nine, remember, Matthew is giving us three miracles and then two lessons on discipleship, three more lessons, three more miracles, two more lessons on discipleship, and then he's gonna end with three more miracles, okay? Remember, too, that the reason he does the miracles isn't to impress. The reason he does the miracles is to get people's attention so they'll listen to the message. Because it's about the words he's saying. They bring true miracle, more, much more than the healing of uh, even a blind person 
would be in me. I mean, that would just blow me away to see that, to witness that. And yet that's just, that's just a drop in the ocean of God's grace to what he wants to do for us and what he wants to do in us. Starting in 18. While he, that's referring to Jesus. No, I'm sorry. Yes, while Jesus was was saying this, referring to the verses immediately prior, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him, Jesus, and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. What's a synagogue? A synagogue is a teaching place, kind of like a Jewish church. I mean, I don't mean any disrespect by that, but it's a gathering of church means assembly. It's an assembling of those followers of the Lord God as spelled out in the Old Testament scriptures. And so they would gather on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, okay? And they would gather every week and they would read the scriptures, they would sing, um, they would pray, and they would encourage one another, and, and they would do that kind of like a good church would do, okay? And you had the priests or the rabbis who would speak and read Scripture, and you had somebody who kind of made sure everything else happened, someone who made sure the doors were open, right? Made sure the bathrooms were clean, right? Make sure the offering's going to be taken when it needs to be taken. Make sure the scrolls are in the right place. All of those things were done by the synagogue leader, okay? And in this case, his name is Jairus. We know from the parallel passages in Mark and Luke. A lot of the details I'll give you are in the parallel passages. Matthew t- tends to cut to the chase and not give you all of that. But you can find those in, uh, you can find the parallels in Mark 5 and Luke 8, if you're curious. So this synagogue leader, now you think about it, he's a religious leader for Judaism in that day. Now Judaism, rooted in the Old Testament, had been, um, had, had drifted further and further away from the essence and the truth of this, of the, of the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? And so, they drift, and, and at this time in history, they're so far away from those scriptures that when they see Jesus, who is the Word of God, they don't recognize Him, and they don't believe Him, and they even call Him a blasphemer and a heretic. That's how far they drifted from the scriptures and understanding the scriptures. They were reading the scriptures. They were being read to people. But most people couldn't even read them because they didn't even know the ancient Hebrew anymore. They were speaking other languages and uh, they were just not able to dig. They didn't get to carry their own Bibles around. They had to go to the synagogue or to where they would hear the, the Word. And so a religious leader, and they were based, you had the Sanhedrin, the 70, and in, in, in uh, Jerusalem who ruled, and then you had other leaders, priests and others. When they had a problem with somebody that they thought was teaching things that weren't true, the synagogue leaders would kind of go, they would be on board, right? They'd be... Yep, I'm with you. Bad boy, bad man, you know, whatever. So here we have a synagogue leader who would have known what Jesus had been saying and what Jesus had been doing. And why was that? Because this is all happening in Capernaum. And if you remember, Capernaum is where Jesus based his ministry of operations in the Galilean region. That's north of the Sea of Galilee. That's north of Jerusalem and Judea. It's in that region called Galilee, which is where he grew up. Nazareth's there and... um, you know, that's kind of where the northern kingdom was, as far if you go back to the Old Testament. So he hears what Jesus has been doing, right? I mean, Jesus has been doing, he's been healing people left and right. 
right? Let's just review. Go back to the beginning of chapter 8. He heals a man with leprosy, and, it, and he's completely healed instantly. No leprosy. He heals a slave of a Roman centurion. Lots of shocking things going on there. For one, you have a Gentile going to a Jew and asking for help. Two, you have a Jew helping Gentile. All right? And, and oh, by the way, this, this Roman soldier is actually, actually cares about his servant. He's not just a, like a, a piece of property. He's a person and he wants, so, so we see that. And then we see that he, we see, uh, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. You know there's something going on when you heal your mother-in-law, right? Right? Am I right, guys? Okay, so there's that's good. And then um, then we have a summary statement that evening came. Many who were demon-possessed, I'm in verse 16 of, of chapter 8, were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick, all. So if you brought somebody, they, they left healed. No copay. There was, uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken, and then he quotes Isaiah. Then he talks about some discipleship principles. The cost of following him. He calms the storm. I imagine not only the guys in the boat were shocked by this is the storm of all storms, and he said stop, and it did, but everybody that was on shore also saw the storm. Man, that was weird. It was like somebody turned the faucet off. Okay? And then he restores uh, two men who are demon-possessed with literally thousands of demons, literally thousands of demons. He, he, he drives the demons out of those guys, he then heals a paralyzed man, okay? Paralyzed, right? What's the cure for that? And then he calls, of all people, a tax collector, and this tax collector follows him, leaves everything behind. And remember, Jesus said it's really tough for rich people to inherit the kingdom of God because they don't want to let go of, right? You've heard of the, you've heard of the African um, story of how they capture monkeys, right? They, they put a piece of fruit in a gourd or a hole, and, and the hole to get the fruit is big enough for the monkey to put his hand through, but small enough to when he grabs anything, he can't pull it back out. And the monkey is so fixated on what he wants that he will not let it go, even though it means his salvation. Okay? That's like the rich. Okay? By the way, we live in a very rich country, don't we? But that's another sermon for another time. And the people said, Amen. All right, and then he talks about fasting, which we skipped through very quickly because who wants to do that? And we talked about the new covenant. I'm kidding, sort of, right? Um, and then he had the new covenant. He talked about the new wine and the old and the wineskins, and and then he raises. We get to Jairus and his daughter. This man comes to Jesus, unlike some people who came asking for something before they believed, or where Jesus just healed somebody and then they believed. This man, like the leper and the centurion, come already believing he can do this and just asking him, will you do it? Okay? He says this, right? My daughter has just died. In some of these parallels, it, she's dying. He comes and she, he says she's dying, and we find out in the story that she eventually dies before Jesus gets there. And see, so see how Matthew just says, that's true. I'm just not going to bother you with all those words, so Darren, move on. And so then he says, so, uh, so he says, my daughter's died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. This is someone who has seen enough. This is someone who has seen enough. He's like, it's not hard for me to believe because I've seen him do this, 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 and this, and I can't explain any of them except God. Okay? But he must believe more than just that. He must believe there's not just power, that there's good. 
because he's coming to him believing that Jesus wants to do which is what is merciful. And so what does Jesus do? He got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. And so Jesus is on his way to presumably heal this child, okay? But something happens along the way. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him, behind Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Do you hear the faith in that statement? Now, some would say this is a desperate faith, and I wouldn't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with desperate faith. I don't think God has a problem with desperate faith. Sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes God allows you and I to get in desperate situations that only God can fix so that we will turn to God finally. Right? Some of us go into his arms with our arms wide open, and some of us go hanging on for dear life, hoping we don't have to go to Africa. Right? And yet God saves, and it only takes this bit of itty-bitty faith in an infinite God. Okay? So this woman who's, we get more detail in Matthew, I won't give you all of it, but she's tried everything, she's tried every doctor, she's out of money, and she's worse than she was when she started. Okay? This woman risked everything to do this because she would have been, you talk about, she's already an outcast, right? She hasn't been to church, so to speak, synagogue, in 12 years because she's unclean. And because she's unclean, the, her family, she can't interact with her family, she can't interact with her, her, her church family, her religious community. She can't earn anything, can't work for anybody. She's isolated, all because she's internally bleeding. She's, her life's not in danger. Her, her rest of her life is going to be this way. Twelve years. I think I'd have given up a long time ago. She finds hope. She finds hope, and she goes to him, and she's heard enough. She's seen enough. She's convinced, and she says, but I'm not going to bother him because I don't want to create a scene because I'm a woman in the days of when women weren't considered real people, hardly. And so she said, I'm just going to do what I believe is enough. Now, this is faith, right? I just need to touch the edge of his cloak. There's a hint that he, he was wearing his prayer cloak or shawl and that she just wanted to touch one of those little prayer tassels. That's all I need to do. Well, she was right. She touches. She's healed like that. But Jesus notices. And this is kind of funny. Um, I don't know if it's Luke or Mark kind of make a big deal about this. But Peter's the Lord's like, who touched me? Now, he's in a mob. He's... People are pressing in. He's trying to get from A to B. And Peter's like, what? What do you mean who's t- who just touched you? We're all touching you. We can't help it. He's like, no, power went from me. I know something significant happened. And we know that eventually she realizes she's going to get called out. She kneels before him, humble. And, and she's okay. She's like, so worth it. If they, if they execute me for this, stone me for this, I don't care. She kneels before him because he's worthy. And Jesus turns to her and he says, in short, this is a short version, take heart, daughter, family. Love that. Daughter of God. Daughter. Not just daughter of Eve. Daughter of God. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Faith in what? Faith in him. Faith in him. And so it continues and the woman was healed at that moment. And when Jesus, and now we get back to the synagogue ruler, right? When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, 
He saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, and he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout all the region. This is kind of weird, right? Why would they go from mourning to laughing like that? That doesn't make sense. Unless you understand that what they're doing here, who are these people? This was tr- this was just kind of the cultural norm. When someone died, of course, they were buried the same day because he stinketh. You know, it's like we're going to decompose quickly in that climate. There's no refrigeration. And so they start embalming and wrapping and all the things they're going to do so they can put them in the tomb and, and close the door before they have to smell much, right? So what would have already been set up ahead of time was I'm going to hire mourners. I'm going to hire criers. I'm going to hire someone to play a dirge on a pipe, on a flute, if you will. Right? I'm going to hire people to come in and, and, and express how the people who have lost someone really feel. Because no one wants them to mourn alone. So kind of good intentions, maybe poor execution in the plan. So these people, they're professional mourners. You think your surgeon is hardened? Professional mourners. Also important to note, they would know a dead body when they see it. They're not going to mourn for someone who's not really dead because they won't get paid. So they've already looked at the girl. They know she's dead. They know they're going to get paid. Jairus is a synagogue leader. He has the green. He's going to pay us, and he's going to pay us well. Bring everybody out. So there's a lot of noise going on when Jesus and them show up. That's why it says that. And saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes. Jesus said to those people, go away. I love it. Get out of here. The girl's not dead, but he hasn't even been in the house. They're like, and so they laugh at him. And they're like, you don't know dead people. We know dead people. <laughs> they didn't know who they were talking to. But he, they laughed at him, the crowd, and, put, and then he, the girl lives. And news spread. This is the pattern. He does a miracle, news spread, right? This is it's funny. It's like the only thing that Jesus says needs to happen that doesn't happen is for people to be quiet. <laughs> Man, he, maybe he needs to tell us to be quiet. Well, it just struck me. Okay, I'll start with me. All right, let's keep going. So, so we're seeing a pattern here, right? He's healing. People believe, and that leads to faith. It leads to healing. It leads to transformation. It leads to not just physical healing, but spiritual reconciliation to God, which is why he should, he called her daughter. If you remember back, um, it might have just been in chapter eight when he heals someone else, uh, a, a guy. And he says, he calls him son. Here it is. It's chapter 9, verse 2. The paralyzed man. When Jesus, this is verse 2, some men brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. See, he gets to the issue because that's what matters to him. The, the, the miracles are just a means to an end. This is why when the disciples go out in twos, and, and he sends them out on their first mission trip without him. And they come back and they go, Lord, even the demons submit to us. And he goes, that's great. That's cool. Glad you guys got to drive out some demons. Awesome. But what really matters is your name's written in the book of life. That's what you rejoice over. Because why? Because the miracles don't matter in the end. We're going to live eternally in a miracle. You're going to get to see that. Okay. You're going to get to be a part of that bodily, physically, forever. Your name written in the book is how you know you're going to get there, as opposed to the other alternative, which is also eternal. 
And so we get into this next healing. I love this one. There's two blind guys, right? What do blind men do in that day? They sit somewhere where there's a lot of people and they hold their bowl. And they're hoping you'll drop something good in. Now, these guys knew their Bible. They knew their Old Testament enough or they were listening to the right people to know when they heard Jesus described as far as what he said and what he did, they recognized somebody. They recognized this is the Messiah stuff. This is what the Messiah kind of things does and says. So when Jesus is in, he's like, like, I know what I'm going to do when he shows up. And this is what they do. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed up, up. Followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When was the last time we saw son of David? Anybody say son of David in Matthew? Well, you'd have to go all the way to Matthew 1.1, where it says, first words of the book of Matthew, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay? So nobody understands yet that we know of, that nobody, they might suspect but nobody is calling him the Messiah. Now, the demons, they, they call him son of God. They, they know who they're talking to. But no people seem to recognize him. But these blind men do. Boy, that's, a, that's not just ironic. There's something there. And he's going to get at it at the end of this chapter when he calls, basically when he refers to the Pharisees and somewhere else where he calls them blind guides. Folks, don't be, really, don't be so good at seeing the world that you miss what really is there. Because the real world that goes beyond what we can see can only be seen through eyes of faith. These blind men have it, I think. I think. And I'll show you why I question it. And I'm not sure. They call out, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, notice they don't say, heal us. They don't say, give us sight. They just say, have mercy. Well, I don't know if that means they just want their sight or if it means more. It could mean I want more. I don't want you to heal my eyes. I want you to heal my soul. You're the Messiah. They seem to have more insight than the typical person. I don't know. Let's keep going. And then it says this. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked them, and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, isn't this interesting? Jesus walks by the blind men and doesn't acknowledge them. Does that bother you? Should that bother us? Blind guys. Have mercy on his son of David. Jesus. He walks inside and they follow him. I love it. Now, I don't know how they followed him. My gut is one of them goes, Hey, 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 you, come here. Let me hold on to your arm. Leave me into there. I'll give you everything in the bowl. Come on, let's go. And off they go into, the, you know, they get into there. Either that or they live there. I don't know. But they get in the house, and there doesn't seem to be a problem with that. And Jesus is not surprised they're there. In fact, that's what he wanted. Why did he want that? I don't know. Do you? I don't know. Now, maybe, just maybe, he didn't want to do this miracle in public. Because why does he say, he says later, just a couple verses sternly to them, see that no one hears about this. He doesn't want the word to be out that he's doing messianic things yet because he doesn't want them to force him to become king because he's not that kind of a Messiah, right? The Jews were perpetually wanting a political deliverer, 
a physical warrior king like David. They wanted to be delivered and reconstituted as, as Israel, the nation, under their king. It's a good desire, not what God was doing, right? Study Isaiah. You see the first 39 chapters talk about Jesus as the suffering servant. The rest of the book of Isaiah, it's the conquering king. And the, the, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders, they, they couldn't figure out which he was. And they were like, well, we'll just discard this part. We don't want to be the suffering servant. We'll go with the king, the conquering king. And they just forgot it or ignored it. Well, he is the conquering king who suffers for his people. That's why we call him a good king. That's why we sing about the blood of Jesus. And that's why we should continue. And I can promise you, as, as things progress and as Christianity becomes less and less okay in this country, singing about blood is going to be one of the ways they identify true believers because there are plenty of people that go to Christian churches that don't believe in the, uh, the uh, uh, what's the word, propitiation of sins. There's a good seminary word for you. The true satisfying uh, uh, wrath of God, being satisfied. How do you satisfy the wrath of God who wants blood? You give him blood. You give him the only blood that doesn't deserve his wrath. Yeah, it ought to be quiet. I should be quiet. When he'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked, what, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord. Lord sometimes means sir, but in the context, he knows he's talking to the Messiah. And so he says, Yes, Lord. I think he believes. Yes, Lord, they replied, both of them. Then he touched their eyes, so that made him unclean. He was okay with that. And he said, according to your faith, don't lose that. Your salvation and mine is according to our faith. According to our faith, let it be done to you. And he was healed. And so they believed he could heal their eyes. And if they were forgiven, it's because they believed he could forgive them too. I don't know. We, don't, we aren't told that part. But I suspect that's the case. Notice who their faith is in. Okay? I have faith and faith is not a statement that makes any sense. I just have faith. In what? I just have faith. Sorry. Yeah, we all have faith. Some people have faith that there is no God. Tell the atheists they've got faith and they might get upset with you, but they do. They can't prove it. Have they searched every inch of the, of the universe? Let's just say that that square, that rectangle represents all the knowledge in all the universe. That's a lot of knowledge, right? That's a, it's a big universe, right? And let's imagine we would draw on this, um, let's just say, how much of this would you estimate would represent all the knowledge that anybody on planet Earth could have? The smartest person. What would you draw? Would you draw like this much? No, you would just say a speck, a speck of dot. That would like subatomic dot on that screen would represent the amount of knowledge that you and anybody on the planet would have of all the knowledge that's out there. Then my response to my atheist friend would be, do you think it's possible that God could be out there somewhere? We have, we are incredibly arrogant to think that we know there is no God. Okay. So atheists have faith too. 
Sorry, no extra charge for that. All right, so here we go. He says, he says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And, and it happens, right? Now watch what happens next. It says, and their sight was restored. And then Jesus warns them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. Like a good, obedient disciple, they disobeyed the very first command from their Lord. Can you relate? You know, it took me 10 years to get baptized as a believer. That's not prompt obedience. Now, I'm grateful for the parable in there where he talks about the son who said, I'll do it, and then he didn't do it, and the son who said, I'm not going to do it, and then he did it, and he praised the second one. I'm like, yes, I've got a chance. (laughs) But delayed obedience is disobedience until you obey, okay? He calls us to prompt obedience and complete obedience. And Abraham is a great example of that. Go study the life of Abraham. You'll see someone who obeyed promptly and completely. Okay, so he disobeys, so we have another person described here. And then it says this, and we kind of get a summary of what's happening here. And we're going to get another one next week when we pick up in 35. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed could not talk... Oh, okay, sorry, one more healing. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk, so he's mute, was brought to Jesus... And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed, as all of us would have been most likely, and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And then it says, but the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Okay, so we have basically, if you count Matthew, which is not in this passage, but he's just before it, where we see Matthew 9, 9, 9, Matthew 9, 9, and 10. As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Notice he didn't ask. He told him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, let's look at the different groups of people and how they responded. We have the crowds. We have those who were healed. We have Matthew, and we have the Pharisees. Let's just quickly, here's the question I want you to ask. As you're thinking about your trajectory, where am I heading today? Maybe this will help you figure that out. Which of these groups, do you, which of these four do you most identify with? The crowd is amazed. Who wouldn't be amazed witnessing these things? But we don't get a sense that the whole crowd is following Jesus. Oh, they're following him around because they're like, hey, maybe he'll do that buffet thing again where we get fish and chips all we can eat. Yeah, let's just go for that. We're going to, right? Or we look and we see Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. He has every reason not to follow. He's the, he's the proverbial monkey with his hand in the gourd and he can't get out and he's caught. Except that Matthew lets go of the fruit. I don't mean to mean Matthew's a monkey. You know what I'm saying, right? And he pulls his hand out and he's saved. And then we have those who are healed, right? And some are just healed. And sometimes we don't know anything and sometimes we see them disobey, okay? So some are healed and they do what he says and some are healed and they don't do what he says. At least not the first command. And then we have the Pharisees who oppose him. In fact, they so oppose him that they look at the good things he's doing and they blame the devil for those good things. They say that's where he gets his power. Now, where where do you find yourself in there? 
And I don't think it's as easy and obvious as we like to go. I don't think we're all running to Matthew. I mean, we might say that. But I might be more like the the blind guys. But the question is, where are you heading today? If Jeff Bezos believes that he can change, he can stave off death by taking a radical change in his position in his own company and believes that it's wise to do so, and rightly so, how much more should we, when we think about our soul, reevaluate and ask ourselves the question, am I so involved in the nuts and bolts of my life that I'm not taking a step back far enough to look and ask myself the trajectory question, where am I heading today? Look, Jesus gives you, he has everything you need to figure that out, and he has everything you need to course correct, whether it's a tweak or a lot. Some of you are heading that way, and this is the way to go. Some of you are heading this way, and this is the way you need to go. And you go, well, that's not bad. That's just a couple of degrees. Okay, but go out eternity and tell me how you're doing. That's all, that triangle does not work to your advantage. You want to be on the course. Matthew seems to demonstrate someone who's willing to walk away from everything after he throws a great party and invites his lost friends and says, you got to hear this. I'm different. I'm walking away from all that I have so that I can get on course. Have the courage to ask yourself those questions. Have the faith to believe that desperate faith even God will respond to. Let's pray. Lord God, you know what we need. You've given us everything we need already. It starts with the blood of Jesus where he died on the cross for our sins so that we could live for him. We remember that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We take a piece of bread that reminds us his, he was beaten and abused and, and, and done, left for dead, but he lived. And they put him on a Roman cross until he bled out and died. We know you love us. You demonstrate your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die accidentally. They didn't catch him on a bad day. It was all part of your plan. For us. For your glory. So, Lord, my prayer is that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that sets us free from sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself, forgiveness found in the blood of Christ, nothing but the blood, by grace through faith in Christ alone. The death, burial, and resurrection that proves the death was good enough to save us from our sins. It is not a bunch of religious gobbledygook. Lord, it is what sets us free. It is faith in Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Lord, give us the faith to believe, and maybe even more importantly, give us the courage to believe it, to exercise the faith you give us. I pray that we would, just as we see these miracles happening, and we may believe they happened in history, that you're still doing miracles today. And that the greatest miracle of all is saving someone from hell itself from the lies of this world that lead us astray. 
Lord, I pray not only that you would save us, but that you would move us to be so singularly focused that we reorient our whole lives, that we change our trajectory to be spot on making disciples who make disciples, leading them to Christ and, and, and helping and say, follow me as I follow Christ. So we're following you and we're leading others to do the same. That is what you call us to. That is our one job. That is why we're not already in heaven, because we still have that to do. Give us the courage to stare ourselves in the mirror and say, am I living this life? And if I'm not, give me the courage and the faith to repent of that sin and believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.